It's Thursday, March 3rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Biden tried to strike a tone of unity during his State of the Union speech, and at key points, it seemed he succeeded. Speaking about the country's support for the Ukrainian people and opposition to Putin's invasion, Biden received applause from both sides of the aisle. He later highlighted issues that do garner bipartisan support, like fixing the opioid epidemic, funding the police, mental health, and fighting cancer. The Republican response focused on what we might be seeing during the midterm elections, a focus on parents and education, and hammering Biden on inflation. Julia Manchester, national political reporter at The Hill, joins us for all the fallout. Next, in another preview of what we could be seeing during the midterm elections, Texas had its primary, and the establishment seems to have maintained the momentum for now. No incumbent Republican was ousted, especially Governor Greg Abbott, who won easily despite early pushback from the right. President Trump was also a player in the primary, as he supported some 16 House incumbents and two candidates in open seats. David Siders, national political reporter at Politico, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We're joining with European allies to find and seize their yachts, their luxury apartments, their private jets. We're coming for you, ill-begotten gains. Joining us now is Julia Manchester, national political reporter at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Julia. Thank you for having me. Well, let's talk about President Biden's State of the Union speech. Generally, it seems like he got some pretty positive reviews. Surprisingly, there was some bipartisan moments where we saw Republican lawmakers standing up and applauding. A lot of it centered around unity over supporting Ukraine and against Russia and the invasion that's going on there. But like I said, that's a, a rare moment that you still see. I mean, th- but this shows kind of the gravity of the situation that we're dealing with right now and how opposed most of the world really is to what's happening with Putin and Russia there. So let's start there. Uh, you know, we'll talk about big takeaways, but let's start with that. Uh, President Biden, obviously, the big topic there seized on it right away, and and everybody was in support of what was, he was saying there. Yeah, that was the most President Biden really. You know, that was the the topic that he spent the most time on during the State of the Union. And there was a big show of support from both sides of the aisle for Ukraine. I mean, you saw a lot of lawmakers wearing royal blue and yellow, as well as the Ukrainian sunflower. You saw Ukrainian flags. You saw First Lady Jill Biden have the U.S., the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States as her guest. So that was a major moment. And you're right, Oscar, it's very rare that you see these moments of bipartisan applause, but it absolutely shows really where we are at this moment when it comes to the issue of uh, Russia invading Ukraine. He particularly got some uh, a good applause when he said that he was going to start going after the Russian oligarchs and creating kind of a new commission to to investigate them, see where the money's going, all that, seize their assets, including their yachts. You know, that was a, a particularly uh, a good moment there for him as well. In terms of the Russian oligarchs, um, there are obviously a number of Russian oligarchs living in the United States, as well as other Western nations, including the United Kingdom. And this is something that Western nations have really been trying to stake out is going, you know, against these oligarchs, because we know that, you know, they are very much connected to Putin, very much controls them. And they have a big stake in Russian wealth and the Russian economy. So that's a big portion of this. And I think that's, a, you know, something that lawmakers on both sides of the aisle really want to see happen in this. And there is not an appetite for 
you know, involvement in a foreign conflict at this moment. Additionally, we know that the Biden administration has faced a lot of backlash for their involvement in that chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. So this is how I think this is how we're going to see the West really respond. Russia is through these oligarchs, but also through sending military aid to Ukraine and humanitarian aid to Ukraine. We're already seeing that happen. We did see the president speak Republicans language on a few issues, most notably when it started, he started talking about, you know, the pandemic a little bit, you know, saying how he wants to keep businesses and schools open. And obviously the CDC said change their guidance on mask wearing defund the police came up. He said we shouldn't be defunding the police. We should be funding them. And that's another moment where GOP leaders stood up and started applauding as well. There was a list of issues that he said we can get this stuff done. Mental health was one of them uh, fighting the opioid crisis. He tried to make as much common ground as he could. Absolutely. And on that issue of funding the police, this is something for a while that Biden and really his side of the Democratic Party have been pushing for. We know that in the summer of 2020 and you know going into 2021, there were lots of calls to defund the police um, as a means of dealing with this awful epidemic of police violence against unarmed black Americans. However, I think there is another you know, side of this argument that would say it's not that we need to take funding away from police. We need to make sure they're getting that proper training. They're getting proper bias training. And there are also, you know, departments are removing police officers who are exhibiting poor behavior or, you know, harmful behavior from their ranks. So I think that's something that Biden is pushing for. We are seeing crime rise across the country. And from his perspective, from Biden's perspective, the only way to deal with that is to make sure police officers have the resources to deal with that. Now, liberals would say that should be done by funding community centers and other parts of local government. But this is very much Biden pushing back against that Republican messaging point that Democrats want to defund the police. We saw that Republicans made gains in the House of Representatives in 2020 by tying Democratic incumbents and candidates to this message of defund the police, and it appeared to work. Coronavirus, obviously a, a huge issue. Really, the president kind of saying we're moving into this next phase now. Obviously, you saw most of the people in the chamber not wearing masks anymore, a marked change from what happened last year. And he laid out some four main goals that he wanted to do to help with this. Uh, obviously, he wants to continue vaccinations, continue vaccinations worldwide. Uh, something brand new, uh, a new test to treat initiative, which, which I think was, it would be really good. Basically, if you go to certain pharmacies or clinics and you test positive, they'll be able to give you these antiviral pills that have been shown, proven to work against COVID and keep you out of the hospital. You can get those on the spot. And, you know, that's something that obviously we needed to wait for those pills to be available. But man, is that a good idea? It is a good idea. And I think this is something you're going to see the administration and Democrats tout as some of their major accomplishments when it comes to COVID going into the midterms. We know that Republicans have very much been messaging on this issue of Democrats being hypocritical when it comes to coronavirus restrictions. Um, and you even saw that messaging during the State of the Union last night with a lot of Republicans saying, well, Biden was in a mask last week. Why is he suddenly not in a mask now. Clearly, this is all about political theater and wanting to make a political point and wanting to benefit off of not wearing a mask. Now, I will point out that the Washington, D.C. mask mandate was rolled back yesterday. 
we've seen a lot of restrictions in the city, including on Capitol Hill, have been lifted. So that was part of that. But it goes into how restrictions are really playing these, you know, maybe the case of rolling back restrictions are playing into the narrative when it comes to the debate over the coronavirus in the political realm. President Biden did take time to talk about other parts of his agenda, maybe that Republicans don't necessarily like uh, the Build Back Better plan, although we're not calling it that anymore. That's not the name of it. So he didn't mention it in that sense of it that way. But some of the things that he wanted to get done through that, he mentioned, he also talked a lot about infrastructures and those other things. He did. And, um, you know, when it comes to Build Back Better, I think he's walking a fine line, obviously wanting to appease those progressives and members of his party that want those those initiatives in that government spending package, whether that's lowering prescription drug costs or providing affordable or free child care, uh, universal preschool, that kind of a thing. So he's talking about how he wants to get really the meat of Build Back Better passed, but not in the same package as Build Back Better, because we know that Joe Manchin in particular, who interestingly was sitting with Republicans last night, was really a thorn in the administration's and Democrats' side on this. And, you know, a member of his own party was the reason, Manchin, was the reason why Biden couldn't pass that legislative achievement. I did want to mention the Republican response. This was delivered by Governor Kim Reynolds of Iowa and really pushed back on a lot of the things that President Biden said and kind of set the stage for a lot of the stuff we're going to be seeing in the midterms. She did talk about Ukraine and Russia and said that he wasn't hasn't been as strong. He's been showing a lot of weakness. You know, just to push back on that a little bit, the United States is not the he's not the president of the world. A lot of these actions need to be done in conjunction with our European allies. When you talk about taking them out of uh, taking Russia out of SWIFT or big sanctions on oil and gas, I mean, those economies are tied to that so much more than we are. That has to be done with their approval. It's not like President Biden can just declare it and it's going to happen. So there's a little bit of pushback there. But one of the big messages that we did see was Republicans being pro-parent. Republicans believe that parents matter when it comes to education. And that's going to be a huge one when it comes to the midterms. Absolutely. That's what the main point that Republicans have been making, especially in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. You saw that really work well in Virginia and in New Jersey to some extent. And you're trying you're seeing them really taking a page out of that playbook going into the midterms. I think there is a question as to whether, you know, how this pro-parent messaging will work at the federal level. Obviously, Glenn Youngkin, as Virginia's governor, has a lot more say in the Virginia school systems than maybe a member of Congress does, for example. However, you're seeing the Republicans' message on this by saying Democrats are beholden to teachers' unions. They're beholden to this idea of being, quote-unquote, woke and wanting to be fashionable, if you will, or trendy, or when they're talking about these issues in the classroom. So this is something you're going to continue to hear from Republicans going forward. It seems that Democrats haven't really formulated the best response yet. They're still trying to figure out how to very much push back against this education problem. But it seems to be working with Republicans who are really appeasing or trying to appease parents who are frustrated with, you know, their kids being out of school or being virtual and, you know, being held back or being behind in their education because of these policies. Yeah, you're right. Democrats really do need a message to counter all of that. So we'll see how that pans out. I mean, overall, 
how did we see President Biden do? Uh, you know, there, with President Biden, there's a lot of concerns sometimes that he might have a coughing fit, that he might stutter about too much and kind of uh, lose train of thought. You know, that's a, a lot of the lines hitting against them, you know, usually center around that. But I thought he was pretty focused, pretty strong. It sounded like there was a CBS YouGov poll that said about 78 percent approve of the speech. Those were speech watchers. And, and it does skew more Democrat. I think the breakdown was about 49% Democrat, 28% independent, and 21% Republicans that saw that speech in this poll. But overall, they they did give him good marks. They did give him good marks. And I think in general, from the news media, you saw a very positive reception to the address. There was at one point where Biden said Iranian people instead of Ukrainian people. That was obviously a misstep, not intentional. You saw a little bit of that on Twitter about what he meant. But in general, I think it was received positively, but obviously along partisan lines. I think a lot of Republicans would say that this was a speech that was purely political and that, you know, he was trying to appease the left. And, you know, he is saying he was bouncing around from too many issues and But I think in general, I had a positive reception. Julia Manchester, national political reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Republicans sent a message. They want to keep Texas the land of opportunity and prosperity for absolutely everybody. Joining us now is David Siders national political correspondent at Politico. Thanks for joining us, David. Thanks for having me. Well, we had the uh, State of the Union going on. There's obviously the ongoing invasion of Ukraine by Russia, but we also had a primary in Texas and just kind of setting up some key things to look for as we go into the midterms. This is one of the first big ones here. We saw, as you mentioned in your article, the establishment really just kind of keep a hold on everything that's going on. There were no really big shakeups. And, uh, you know, everybody's kind of looking to this to see what they can glean for the midterms, as I mentioned. So, David, start us off. What did we see in the Texas primary? Well, well, first of all, you're exactly right. No incumbent Republican was defeated in the primary. Although I, I should say that if primary day was a good day for the establishment, the day after today was dismal, I think, we just in the last couple of hours, see Van Taylor is suspending his re-election campaign after allegations of infidelity. That will be one establishment Republican going down. But on balance, this was not a day for challengers, and it was a day for the old guard. Even George P. Bush, the last Bush in office, uh, managed to fight his way into a runoff in the race for attorney general. You mentioned uh, they had to step down because of these allegations. There was a couple of other instances, too, where people had been uh, accused of wrongdoing in the AG race. There was uh, an occasion of that too, right? Well, well, that's right. I mean, uh, Ken Paxton, the current attorney general is just, he's scandal written uh, and he's denied wrongdoing, but it's, it's been years of investigations with him. So, so that's definitely come up in the attorney general's race. He's under criminal indictment uh, and an FBI probe. It's clearly something that George P. Bush, who's running against him, will be raising in the, the runoff. What did we see as far as Democrats and progressives go? I mean, I think they'll claim this was a, a really good night, right? They Last year, we saw just a ton of losses for progressive Democrats, and that came right after 2020, of course, where Bernie Sanders uh, was beat by Joe Biden, the, the ultimate moderate. So in the most closely watched race, you saw Jessica Cisneros, who had the backing of Bernie Sanders, 
and AOC force Henry Cuellar into a runoff. And that's a big deal. He's one of the most conservative Democrats in the House. And then in a different race, uh, an Austin City Council member who's a rising star in the party easily won his primary. I think it would be not good, though, to read too much into what happened in Texas. You know, Cuellar, the FBI raided his home and his office earlier this year. And then the other race, you know, Austin is a heavily liberal, deeply blue pocket of Texas. And so if you're trying to read national tea leaves for where things stand, a good night for progressives, but not like something that turns the tables. You know, we were talking about how the incumbency still matters and we're looking at Governor Greg Abbott. You know, he had uh, been facing some opposition, but really he kind of swung through it pretty easily. We're looking at his possible Democratic opponent. uh, I guess he is the Democratic opponent, uh, Beto O'Rourke. And in all sorts of polls, he's beating him by multiple points, seven points in one, 11 points in another poll. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you used to talk to people in Texas and you'd talk about Beto O'Rourke's prospects and say, well, how does he run against Abbott, who will have this huge war chest and the power of incumbency? And there were intelligent people in Texas a year ago who would say, well, it might not be Greg Abbott. And the reason for that was because he was facing some pretty serious challengers from his right. Alan West, this former congressman from Florida, a Tea Party firebrand, and then Don Huffines, a former state senator, were both running at Abbott from the right. But what Abbott managed to do, in addition to having just oodles of money, was he did things that challengers can't do, which is sign bills. So he signed these GOP-pleasing bills on critical race theory and guns. He starts building the border wall. And then, of course, he had Donald Trump's endorsement. So really, this was the race that might have been, but never was. And that's how Abbott ends up just crushing the rest of the field. And you're right, he's, he's leading Beto O'Rourke in the general election. On the other hand, uh, looks like that margin might have narrowed a few points in the last month. So we'll see. You mentioned President Trump. What about the Trump factor? You mentioned he didn't endorse Greg Abbott, but there were a lot of other races that he was endorsing a lot of people. You may mention that I guess they were probably more safe bets, but uh, he still figures large. And, you know, obviously we don't know what's going to happen in 2024. You know, if the midterms go really well, there's a good chance he, he'll be running there. But he did uh, make a lot of picks that he stuck with on this side. Yeah, I mean, what what Trump wants to do at the end of the midterm year is to be able to say, I have a 98 point whatever percent endorsement record to prove his his medal in the midterms. And so you did see him get into Texas in a bunch of mostly safe. A lot of them were even uncontested primaries. A lot of the endorsements came late, but he was up and down the ballot. I mean, it was all the way from Abbott down to a couple of people running in county races in in Tarrant County. And then he had state lawmakers and, and House members, of course. So his endorsement mattered and he did well. And one thing he did in Texas that he has not managed to do elsewhere is that he just didn't mess up. So you saw in some other states already how his endorsed candidates for Senate have faltered in a couple of places. And that just wasn't the case here. So a rare thing you can say about Trump is that, you know, on this Tuesday, anyway, he exhibited some discipline and uh, it paid off for him. And we'll see, we'll see really later on in in later coming primaries, how big a deal he is. We'll learn a lot more about Trump's endorsement when, you know, Cheney's on the ballot in Wyoming or Kemp in Georgia. David Siders, national political correspondent at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.